Hello, Nightingales. Welcome back for our fourth episode on our series on personality disorders. We'll be wrapping up our discussion regarding personality disorders and talking about the t- some topics that we'll be covering in upcoming episodes. So stay tuned. Hello, and welcome to the PRN Nursing Education Show. This podcast is for everyone interested in listening to many lectures on specific content and discussions on various nursing and healthcare related topics. From nursing students, nurse educators, baby nurses to seasoned nurses, and everyone in between, this is the podcast made just for you. So channel your inner Florence Nightingale and get ready to learn. welcome back. So when we're talking about the diagnoses, um, we require the following. We should see a persistent, inflexible, pervasive pattern of maladaptive traits involving cognition, and that would be their way of thinking or perceiving or interpreting themselves and others or events, and their affect, and that is the emotional process, how they feel um, emotionally about things. And remember, we're looking at that interpersonal function. How do they interact with others? You know they are able to have, or are they able to have beneficial, helpful relationships? And then we're looking at impulse control. Is there a lack of impulse control? Is there too much control um, where, where on their part or... Is there a feeling of a lack of control where they, they're frozen and they aren't able to make decisions? Or do they just make decisions without any regard for consequences of their behavior? So we're looking for a pervasive pattern of two or more of these. Second, we're looking for significant distress or impaired functioning resulting from these maladaptive patterns of behavior or thinking. So again, for it to be a diagnosis, it is not just a temporary flux in their personality trait or situational. Um, we're looking at a consistent pattern of behavior across contexts, across you know roles in terms of whether it's professional versus familial versus social. Um, we would see the same consistent patterns. Remember when I stated we can see maybe through re- self-report or collateral report um, problems with their children, their family, their friends, their co-workers. Um, we see how this is impairing their functions. So when we talk about the level of impairment, that is when we get into being a diagnosable disorder versus a trait. And lastly, we'll look at the relatively, how relatively is it stable? So is there on, early onset of a pattern of behavior? Um, in our first episode when we were talking about um, you know, childhood and the traits that we're developing as we transition into adolescence and adulthood. Uh, some of the more maladaptive behaviors we may grow out of, but we will see some consistency in uh, certain traits that have become more maladaptive in adulthood. So 
again, that is what is going to make it a disorder. And when we look at the fact that this is going to speak to the st stability in terms of how that person per perceives and behaves, um, are they able to grow out of some of these behaviors? Yes. Are they able to have and develop some more adaptive behaviors over time? Yes. But over a period of time, this is has become more entrenched in terms of their normal functioning. So that is why it's going to be harder for us to overcome some of this. And, you know, when we talk about utilizing therapeutic te techniques, therapeutic communication techniques or de-escalation techniques, you know, some people may be resistant to that because they don't think it's effective. They, you know, they, they'll say if this person is being verbally abusive or aggressive towards me, that how can just speaking a certain way or using certain words, um, how is that going to make a difference? And that is where we have to look at the risk assessment. We can't jump to a certain reaction that may escalate the situa situation into a more dangerous situation. And this doesn't mean that you don't have the right to protect yourself or defend yourself, but sometimes we unintentionally escalate a situation when we could have taken a couple seconds, a couple beats before we responded. Um, so just having that awareness, that self-awareness on our end can sometimes make situations go a little bit better. But this is not to say that we are, or I am, disregarding that there are risks involved. And um, that is a topic that we will discuss as well in terms of safety and risk factors um, that nurses or clinicians experience in the medical field. Um, we all know that there are, you know, in addition to verbal abuse, there are physical abuse and even, there, you know, people have been murdered and seriously injured um, by patients or um, their family members or something like that. So this is not to negate the seriousness of that, but this is speaking to, in general, the 99% of circumstances we will be in um, that we do have more control, not only over the situation, but our reactions to a situation. So getting back to when we are talking about these patients and looking at the evidence, and despite all evidence to the contrary, and from what is telling them um, that their patterns of behavior are maladaptive and a problem, um, they don't see that. They don't see that this is not healthy. So they continue on this path. So that is what we're looking for when we talk about looking at that early onset and stability of these traits. But when we get into to this more disordered pattern of behavior that's impacting their lives as with anything, we are going to be ruling out, ruling out pos possible causes of the symptoms. So are there other mental health disorders? Is there a history there? Is there a history 
a familial history in addition to their medical history? Is there a history of substance abuse? Is there head trauma? Anything like that that must be excluded if we cannot exclude another source or root cause for these symptoms. Then we have to dig a little deeper. If none of these other things are apparent to result in these behaviors, then it's a greater indicator that this is actually a result of a personality disorder and not a secondary or primary or, or other primary condition. So for personality disorders to be diagnosed in patients under the age of 18, this pattern must be present for at least one year or more, except for anti-personality uh, anti personality disorders, which cannot be diagnosed in patients under the age of 18. Um, so for patients under the age 18, under the age of 18, we'll more likely see them diagnosed with conduct disorder. Um, but statistically, when they do become adults, they are going to have a higher rate of antisocial behavior and possibly will ultim or ultimately end up with an antisocial personality disorder diagnosis as well. So that is one thing that we have to consider. But then we, the reason that that is the case is when we look at the development and as people get older, their cognitive functioning also develops. So when we look at that frontal lobe, that executive functioning, it is hard for us to justify putting a label of antisocial personality disorder or antisocial uh, disorder on that adolescent or child because they haven't fully developed impulse control. Their reasoning, we're giving them opportunity to for their reasoning to develop that we're giving them opportunity to mature essentially so that maybe we'll see some of these behaviors uh, go away so that is uh, essentially the rationale for that uh, change is so important when we think of this and it's impo important to note that well you know what was present in childhood and what came up later in life when we talk about that childhood diagnosis, you know, that could be significant in the difference in terms of what we see now. So there is a link often with uh, diagnoses from childhood. Um, but when we see this in adulthood, it may change into another thing. Or hopefully they've had the appropriate interventions along the way where we do not see that diagnosis develop in adulthood. So that's the where the patient history comes in. So we're looking at the objective data that we get from looking at these records and getting supplemental reports either from family members, significant others, law enforcement. Um, in addition to that information from the patient themselves because that patient information is subjective. So think of unfiltered versus filtered information. You know, quite often in all settings, you know, patients may not feel like they can be 100% honest um, with things. So that's why that objective data, that supplemental information could be important. Um, specifically, if think of looking at a narcissistic or a antisocial personality disorder, 
how reliable is that history going to be? How reliable is that information going to be? Are they manipulating us so we can see that this could be a potential issue um, where that is concerned in terms of the veracity or truthfulness of what they're reporting to us? So in terms of treatment, we'll be looking essentially at psychotherapy. Okay, so there's not necessarily a pill that is going to make your dependent personality disorder go away or make your narcissistic personality disorder go away. So unlike other diagnoses, when we talk about schizophrenia or schizophrenia spectrum disorders or depression or bipolar disorder, where we would be looking at mood stabilizers with that, for example, or antipsychotics with the the schizophrenia spectrum disorders, we don't have that for personality disorders. The pharmacological interventions could be a significant part of their treatment. However, that is not going to be the ultimate answer to their treatment since we are dealing with their cognitive and effective and emotional functioning. So we'll go, we'll continue with that um, a little bit more as we talk about treatment symptoms and uh, interventions, uh, but we're going to take a break right here. See you soon. Okay, welcome back um, as we continue our discussion on personality disorders. Um, just wanted to make a note. I told you that um, personality disorders can be rather relatively complex and uh, sometimes difficult to un understand. And as you can see, the amount of information that we're covering over a series of uh, episodes, um, it's important because I want to make sure, again, that we um, are conveying um, this information in a way that you can gain a better understanding of these types of disorders so just want to make that note we're almost at the end so hang in there all right so where we left off last we were talking about getting into um, appropriate treatment for personality disorders and I mentioned that uh, we are primarily looking at psychotherapy or cognitive behavioral therapy or you might refer to it as CBT as being more of the gold standard um, with our personality disorders. Um, so we're not really as focused on the pharmacological interventions um, with these patients. You know, however, remember there are no way, there are no absolutes. We have to look at the situation and the context of the situation and what is going on to determine what is going on in the acute phase versus what is going on um, in terms of ongoing treatment. So remember, we can still see secondary symptoms of anxiety and depression or even psychoses um, that, you know, we would have to be dealing with those symptoms accordingly. So do we need to prescribe antidepressant? Do we need to prescribe an antipsychotic? Do we need to prescribe an anti-anxiety um, medication like a benzodiazepine? for a short term uh, to stabilize uh, those symptoms. 
So again, it depends on the circumstances. We need to look at the time of onset, know the circumstances of the patient's situation to determine the appropriate pharmacological intervention. But remember, the gold standard for treatment of personality disorders is psychotherapy. So we'll be looking at individual and group therapy, family therapy. These are effective in, in many of these disorders. So if the patient is seeking treatment and is motivated to change, so we can see how challenging that could be if a person is not motivated for change, then they are not going to be able to appropriately engage in psychotherapy. So they have to have insight into their behaviors and their actions and how it is causing an issue in their lives. So this is going to you know, probably take us a little bit of time. It's not going to be a a switch that is flipped and all of a sudden they're they're going to have insight into you know how their patterns of behaviors and thoughts have impacted their lives um, so it is going to take time and it can be frustrating for us as clinicians and definitely frustrating for the patient and for their families and and loved ones um, because it's not something that is going to happen overnight um, and because it is so ingrained in their identity, essentially, of who they are. So we have to always keep that in mind that, you know, we may get frustrated seeing the same patterns of behavior over and over and over again. But we have to remember that this is something that we're pretty much trying to rebuild their perception. We're trying to rebuild their thought patterns. So that is not something that is going to happen overnight. So we're looking at their emotions, their thoughts and feelings, and hopefully they're going to be better able to perceive and empathize with others. So typically personality disorders are not going to be very responsive to medications. If we are utilizing medications, those are usually going to be treating specific symptoms but we're not going to see a significant impact on those symptoms that we discussed in terms of looking at the DSM-5 criteria. Because we're not necessarily dealing with a neurotransmitter or chemical imbalance um, that we can fix with a pill. This is a behavioral issue. So when we talk about cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, that is an example of why it is particularly useful for us to utilize this as an intervention with these patients. We will have to look at if these at these disorders that you know the behaviors that they are exhibiting are coexisting with other disorders. Remember, such as substance abuse or somatic symptoms or eating disorders and so forth, um, which can make the tre- treatment even more challenging and lengthening the amount of time it takes to stabilize and to officially reach what we would call remission. So we could be looking at years in some cases, depending on the context context of the coexisting conditions and diagnoses that may be going on. So this would increase the risk of relapse and decrease the response to otherwise effective treatment. So again, it's not when we talk about that 80 pie and evaluating our interventions, we should do that routinely and make some tweaks along the way, 
but remember we have to give our interventions time to actually work um, so patience is definitely required for everyone involved so well even though these disorders again you may not seem as serious these disorders definitely are some of the most challenging diagnoses that clinicians will face in practice. So general principles of treatment will include reduced subjective distress for the client. So we would have to identify those. We would have to understand what could cause possible distress for a borderline personality. What could be considered distress for a dependent personality? What could be distressing for an obsessive compulsive personality disorder. So there are things that when you are reviewing the materials or studying um, that you should be able to identify what would be distressing in terms of an event or interaction that this client would have and how would you as a nurse in that clinical environment manage it. We also need to be able to en enable patients to understand what their specific needs and problems are. So they need to internalize this information in themselves in terms of their external thoughts that either they're placing blame on others or they're placing too much power in terms of their self-identity being shaped by others. We have to turn that self-assessment, that self-awareness inward just as we do for ourselves. So to really work on getting them to develop the sense of insight into their diagnoses and their condition and their symptoms and without that level of awareness we will not really get far with them we will be working to decrease their maladaptive and socially undesirable behaviors again if this has been the way that they've been functioning all their lives this will take some time so that is not an overnight process this definitely requires a commitment on their part and on the part of their care team to work through this with them. We will see some backsliding just as we will with in, in terms of others, in terms of behaviors. And we want to get them to figure out ways to modify some of these problematic personality traits. Um, so going back to when we started about talking about a personality trait is more stable, more fixed, that is something that defines who we are. We have to help them understand that some of these things may need to be done differently, um, that they cannot continue going on and approaching life and interpersonal reactions the same way that they have before um, because it has caused problems. So we have to get them to realize that. So how do we reduce this subjective nature of this? What is, you know, primarily when we talk about them in, in terms of their you know, roots of their anxiety and depression, these symptoms will respond to increased psychosocial reports or support, which often includes moving the patient out of a highly stressful situation or relationship. If drug therapy is required to relieve stress, then we will do that um, with, you know, anti-anxiety medication or antidepressant if necessary, but we don't want them to think that relying on the medication alone is what's going to help them. We're looking at reducing levels of stress if that is 
um, really triggering uh, some possible behaviors. Um, and this will make our treatment of the underlying personality disorder easier by stabilizing those types of symptoms. So especially in a dependent uh, personality disorder or borderline or histrion or histrionic personality disorder with someone that shows signs of a dependent personality disorder, then, you know, we may have to be treating those other symptoms as well. And while we're um, mentioning the dependent personality disorder, one of the things that we want to help them is to look at their relationships and try to help them see the signs that, you know, the maybe their existing relationship or environment isn't the most beneficial or healthy for them to recover, essentially. Um, so for full transparency, that is easier said than done in terms of telling them that they need to change their environment and so forth. But what would be the goal for us to help them identify that they probably need to move to a more healthy environment when they feel that they are ready. Um, when we talk about enabling the patient to see that their problems are in, more internal, internally focused than externally focused, that means that the, these patients need to understand that their problems with work or relationships are caused by their own actions or reactions to situations. And that's why it has become problematic. They have to look at their ways of relating to the world. And so whether that be how they handle a task, how they handle authority or intimate relationships, um, you know, achieving this level of understanding requires a substantial amount of time, patience, commitment, and energy on the part of not only the patient, but the clinician, because this is going to be a long road. So clinicians also need to have a basic understanding of the patient's areas of emotional sensitivity, so to speak. We also look at ways of, you know, helping them cope with family members and friends. Um, and that's where bringing in others um, may be beneficial um, because they may not necessarily be aware that, you know, this is something that is going to be, require a lot of support in terms of helping them through this process. Um, and as I stated before, we may be dealing with secondary victims uh, or secondary patients in a way um, of this uh, person. Um, so we really need to make sure that we um, are engaging um, with their external support system if it's available. So social isolation is another thing that we see. Um, we are more likely to see those with cluster A. So I, I didn't want to disregard that, you know, where we're talking about the impact of interactions with people, excuse me, such as family and coworkers and such. If we are looking at those cluster A personality disorders, like the antisocial personality disorder, this may be a situation where this person will isolate themselves from 
other. So we're not looking at necessarily a strong support system. So that is even more important for us to be able to professionally provide that support to encourage them to develop more healthy external relationships. Um, we don't want them to become dependent on us as the only source, but we want to give them um, that confidence to, um, you know, get away from some of their more fearful or paranoid type um, behaviors when we look at that. So we want to encourage that. We want to celebrate that, you know, that they've gone to a club or that they had a short interaction with someone else. They were able to exchange a hi and hello to someone in the hall without avoiding um, contact with someone that they were passing in the hall. If we pick up on those things, we need to acknowledge it to give that positive reinforcement to them. So we should deal with any backsliding as quickly as possible. Um, if we start seeing outbursts, um, you know, temper tantrums. Um, I encourage you to think of those um, when we're, how do we handle those? So, you know, is yelling at that person going to make them act differently? Raising your voice, um, that sort of thing. Threatening, um, especially when we're talking about antisocial personality disorders and the like, or borderline personality disorders, that's definitely <laughs> not the way to go. And then if we are, you know, maybe utilizing sarcasm, you know, maybe for the dependent personality uh, type or even the uh, obsessive compulsive personality disorder um, type person, you know, that can be triggering to someone, um, you know, and could come across as dismissive or hurtful, even if that's not our intentions. Um, so with all with any type of maladaptive behavior, we need to implement boundaries and limits on behavior. Um, and we, those have to be established and enforced. So consistency is going to be the key. If you say you're going to do something, then do it. If you say you're going to do it at a certain time, then do it or make sure you're checking in. So we have to establish that sense of trust and make sure that we're setting limits for them in terms of this is what we are mutually agreeing on, that this is when I'm going to check back or this is when I'm going to um, provide this for whatever request that they made, that you're putting them on a schedule, but it's most mutually agreed upon. So if they're treated in the hospital, you know, that's usually where we'll have to really see that. Um, and we all know that as you know, nurses, we are stretched thin and, you know, as a bedside nurse, are you going to be, you know, providing psychotherapy to your patients? No, but you're going to be utilizing some of those tools to minimize conflict. So put it this way. If you get into a power struggle with somebody, that's going to take a lot more time than to firmly and therapeutically de-escalate the situation, come to an agreement, offer choices, you know, give explanations, education on why things have to be a certain way, 
we have to make sure that we take the time to verbalize those things to uh, prevent further problems. So as we go back to looking at the actual behavioral treatment, um, you know, we'll see that mostly in the outpatient setting, self-groups uh, or self-help groups, um, you know, would be beneficial. Coaching, um, you know, can also be appropriate for these patients. Uh, so when we're looking at uh, the terms of some modifying uh, problematic personality traits, um, so that whether that be dependency, distrust, arrogance, manipulativeness, this takes a long time and typically more than a year. So the, the cornerstone of making such change possible is that individual psychotherapy. So we need to form from the beginning and encourage them to commit to staying on track with their program. All right, with that, we're going to take a break and then we will wrap up our personality disorder discussions. Stay tuned and see you soon. All right, welcome back. So we're in the final stretch on our discussion on personality disorders. So where we left off was talking about looking at that long-term treatment and, you know, starting the process for change. So a lot of this is going to be essentially related to skills training, social skills training. They need to develop new and better ways of interacting. And we need to point out the any undesirable behaviors and their consequences because that's going to be part of it. Um, this is because a, awareness of them on their part is probably lacking. So this strategy can help patients change their maladaptive behaviors and mistaken beliefs. So that's when we're talking about those thought schemas. And schemas are basically our kind of outline in our, in our brain of how we perceive and react to certain things. So if we have a maladaptive pattern of thinking um, and we continue on with that, again, that's going to make uh, effective therapy or, you know, make it less likely that therapy will be effective. So we need to help them identify when they are starting to go down that path um, of those less uh, positive behaviors. So clinicians should be acting with sensitivity, even though sometimes these behaviors can be challenging and frustrating. We need to be treating these patients still with professionalism, kindness, and sensible advice. And why they need to do this for themselves as well as those in their support system within their personal lives. And especially if we are dealing with uh, these patients for an extended amount of time, whether it be somebody that is undergoing extensive medical treatment or in the actual uh, psychiatric setting, um, we have to not forget that, you know, establishing that trust 
is going to be important, but also maintaining the dynamic of, of mutual respect. Okay. So again, we want to avoid power struggles. All right. So I hope that this uh, series has helped you better understand uh, personality disorders. And I would encourage you to, if there's specific, I didn't go into detail in uh, specific, each specific personality dis disorder. I just gave you some overviews and some consistent themes that we see with these disorders. Um, but I would encourage you to look into um, additional resources. Um, and I can post some of those on the website um, if you're interested in learning more about this topic. All right, so that wraps up our personality disorders. And from here, um, our, we got a couple things coming up. Um, so I do want to talk about uh, safety in nursing and some of the issues that we are seeing. Um, so the reason that I think it will be beneficial to segue from our discussion on personality disorders to that discussion on nurse safety and basically nurse rights of, you know, to be safe in their working environment is important because we have to find that balance. Yes, our, we have a duty and an ethical responsibility to take care of our patients, but that does not mean that abuse is okay, you know, and we have to also identify where we can control situations and where we need to make sure that our organizations are supporting us um, when there are certain circumstances outside of our control. Um, so there are a couple of stories and um, we'll be discussing those that, um, and I know there's some stories that, you know, we probably have all heard and are familiar with, um, but I'll be posting some things on the website, uh, some articles regarding that, and we will get into that discussion. The second thing that I'm kind of excited about, and we'll see how it goes again, I'm trying different things and see what works for um, everybody, but I want to meet people where they are. And sometimes that means getting outside of my comfort zone as well. Um, so that I'm looking at um, setting up Discord channels. I'm trying to get more into social media with Instagram and Twitter. I still haven't dipped my toe into TikTok yet, but that's probably coming. Um, we are going to be looking at um, doing more video uh, uh, lessons or episodes as well in addition to uh, continuing this podcast. Um, but another thing that I don't think is widely used um, is a newer platform uh, called AMP. And AMP is a platform through Amazon that basically you can set up your own radio show. <laughs> and so I'm going to test this out and see how it goes. But I have a episode plan for October 29th at 8 p.m. And there's and the title of it is Fake It Till You Make It. And the reason that that's the title is um, this is the music and the discussion is going to be about helping us get over 
some of the challenges and some of that self-doubt that we may feel either as students or as professionals and getting out of our own way and moving forward in our careers. So stay tuned for that. We're going to have some power anthems. We're going to have some, you know, some hopefully inspirational uh, theme songs for you that you can utilize when you're studying and just have that theme song in your head when you're going into something challenging. Um, so again, I will be posting information um, in, on my social media accounts and in the show notes regarding that. But please stay tuned and hopefully you um, listen in on the AMP uh, show. And that AMP show is called PRN Nursing Education uh, Show Amped Up. A-M-P apostrophe D up. So I think this will be a fun way for us to interact and be able to actually talk. So I know if I get one person on this first one, I will be enthusiastic. I will be more than appreciative. <laughs> so again, if you have any ideas, please reach out. You can email me at prnnursingeducation at gmail.com. You can check out the website, prnnursingeducation.com. You can look for me on LinkedIn, um, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, everything but TikTok right now. <laughs> so stay tuned. I hope to hear from you. And I really want to know what things are you most interested in, in hearing about? Because I want to set this up as not only a platform for educational content, but to elevate certain topics and voices in healthcare, in nursing, um, that we can learn from those different perspectives and get a more well-rounded idea of the profession and the world. So this, consider this a platform, not just for our show and not just for nursing, but for everyone that is concerned about making healthcare better um, in this country. So that is my soapbox and promotional moment. I will hope to see you in the classroom. Have a good day and see you soon. Bye-bye. The PRN Nursing Education Podcast is hosted by me, Professor Blue. You can email me at prnnursingeducation at gmail.com. Again, that is prnnursingeducation at gmail.com with any questions or topic requests. We are working on setting up all our social media, so check the show notes for where you can find even more great content from our show. Find the PRN Nursing Education Show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Look forward to seeing you in the classroom. <laughs>